0: qualifies a Christian man or woman to be useful to the master? Well, that's a good question, isn't it? Or or maybe you've never thought that there are qualifications. maybe, Maybe you just thought getting a place on the team was good enough. Well, let's look at this text together. Let's begin our search for the answer to this question by reading the text before us. And it's 2 Timothy 2. 20 through 23, and for the sake of getting a, a feel for the larger context, since we've been out of the context for a while, let's, let's begin in verse 8. Would you stand with me, and let's read the Word of God together? 2 Timothy chapter 2, we'll begin with verse 8. I'm reading out of the ESV, and please follow along with me. Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, the offspring of David, as Preached in my gospel, for which I am also suffering, bound with chains as a criminal. But the word of God is is not bound. Therefore, I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they also may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. This saying is trustworthy. For if we have died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we deny him, he will also deny us. And if we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. (laughs) Remind them of these things and charge them before God, not to quarrel about words which does no good, but only ruins the hearers. Do your best to present yourself to God, one who is approved, a worker who does not need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth, but avoid... Irreverent babble, for it will lead people into more and more ungodliness, and their talk will spread like gangrene. Among them are Hymenius and Philetus, who have swerved from the truth, saying that the resurrection has already happened. And they are upsetting the faith of some. But God's firm foundation stands, bearing this seal. The Lord knows those who are his, and let everyone who names the name of the Lord depart from iniquity. Now, in a great house, there are not only vessels of gold and silver, but also of wood and clay, some for honorable use, some for dishonorable. Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from what is dishonorable, he will be a vessel for honorable use, set apart as holy, useful for the master of the house, ready for every good work. So, flee youthful lusts. And pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace, along with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. May the Lord add his blessing to the reading of his word. And you can be seated. Now, I realize I cut verse 23. That's because when I was writing this sermon, I got to verse 23 and realized we really need to set that aside for next week. Uh, i had already hit my limit on pages, and the... Uh, children, child care workers will be thankful in the end. So, It's always important for us to read the text in its context so we don't miss the point of what the author is saying. In this case, Paul is writing a letter to his younger protege, Timothy, encouraging him and instructing him and how to be a faithful pastor and leader in the church, that God is growing in the world. He writes this letter from prison, And he knows that time is short. His execution is scheduled to happen sooner rather than later. And so Paul is taking his last shot at preparing Timothy to pick up the mantle when Paul leaves it behind. This explains, by the way, why in chapter 1 Paul exhorts Timothy not to be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord and not to shrink back from the suffering that is connected to the gospel, It's also why he exhorts Timothy to do his best, verse 15, to present himself to God as a worker who does not need to be ashamed, rightly handling or cutting straight the word of truth. Along the way, Paul reminds Timothy of certain men who claim to be ministers of Christ who proved to be unfaithful when the going got tough. Men like, verse 15 of chapter 1, uh, Figilus and Hermogenes, who turned their backs on Paul when he needed them most, and men like Hymenius and Philetus that he mentions in 2.17, who ended up swerving from the truth, upfa- uh, upsetting the faith of some by teaching that the resurrection had already happened, and that I think the implication is you missed it. You've been left behind. And then Paul makes a profound statement in verse 19. He says, but God's firm foundation stands. I take that to mean, and I won't re-preach that text from a few weeks ago, he's referring to the church. This this firm foundation is what Christ is building. It's this house that God is building, that Christ is building. Jesus said, I will build my church, and back in those days, when you laid a foundation stone, there was often an inscription carved into that stone. And in this case, there are two inscriptions. Namely, number one, the Lord knows who are His. And part of the inference there is we don't, right? I assume every time we meet together, in this room, in the room down the hall, or wherever people may be listening online, that there are unbelievers, religious unbelievers, people who... Have some sense of religion, some knowledge of Christ, some knowledge of the gospel, but who have not been changed from the heart. They don't really know him, not as he is to be known. But the Lord knows who are his. And, and, and I think the inference there for us practically is your job isn't to save anyone, uh, your job is simply to get the message right. Be faithful. Be faithful. The Lord is building his church. He's calling certain ones to himself. This is a reflection back, by the way, on verse 10, where Paul says, this is chapter 2, verse 10, I endure everything for the sake of the elect. And then the second inscription is this. Let everyone who names the name of the Lord depart from iniquity. The people whom God has drawn to himself should be marked by one dominant characteristic, namely, progressive sanctification, or in a word, holiness. Amen. If the Holy Spirit is resident in your heart, he is actively working to make you look more like himself. That is, holy. Holy. And, and don't confuse holy with religious. You can be religious without being holy. Holy. You can be religious and be going to hell. And so by the grace of God, these people, these saints, are striving to lay aside the sinful habits and desires of their former life and are putting on the character of Christ. They're not doing it by their own strength, but they are fully engaged in the process. Well, the following paragraph in the text then picks up on this theme of the Christian's grace-empowered pursuit of holiness. And this is what we will consider in our time to remaining this morning. Now, this section of Scripture, I love it when this happens. You kind of tap on it a couple of times and it breaks into three nice, neat parts. Uh, we used to say in college, all you need is three points and a poem. I haven't done a poem in a long time, and won't do it today, but it does break into three easy parts. Number one, the illustration of household vessels, verse 20. Number two, the definition of useful vessels, in verse 21. And number three, the exhortation to become such vessels, in verses 22 and 23, which we will not get to 23 today, but we'll come back to it next week. It's all part of the same thought. So let's begin with verse 20, where Paul offers the illustration of household vessels. Look at verse 20 with me. Now, in a great house, there are not only vessels of gold and silver, but also of wood and clay, some for honorable use, some for dishonorable Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from what is dishonorable, he will be a vessel for honorable use, set apart as holy, useful to the master of the house, ready for every good work. Now we know from verse 19 that Paul is speaking about the church that Jesus is building So when we read in verse 20 about the great house, we understand that he's speaking about the church. He's speaking about the church not in in the sense of the nuclear family kind of church, the local church, but in the church as a whole, the church alive today around the world, regardless of language or culture, the true church. This is the large house. And in this large house, this large house is not like your everyday typical first century building or first century home a first century home might have only one room in it maybe two they might have a small kitchen outside as most in third world countries most of them do this house is this house is not like that a very small house would have very few um, tools or containers or appliances. Can you even say appliance in relation to a first century church? No, this house is, is more like the home of a king, more like Caesar's palace. It's large and well furnished. Furnished. It, it has all the latest appliances, and when it comes to containers and pitchers and bowls and platters and pots and pans and plates and cups, there seems to be no end And Paul says, you know, a really big house is going to have all kinds of vessels. Some of the vessels, as Paul calls them, are made of gold. and Some are made of silver. And others are made of wood or clay. And some of these vessels apparently are fit for honorable use and others for dishonorable use. For example, some vessels are used for cooking and serving food and drink. You want to be very careful with them, that people are going to consume things off of them. They are vessels that, that bring things into the banquet hall or bring things into the house to be eaten. These are honorable vessels. There are other vessels, however, that are used for things used to take things out of the house. They are dishonorable vessels. Such vessels are also often disposable vessels. When I was in Israel. Just a month or two ago, very last day, Terry Enns and I decided to take a walk on the, the beach right outside the hotel. We were in, in uh, southern uh, Israel, right across from Gaza, where the rockets tend to, <laughs> t- tend to come in. And uh, we decided to take a walk on the beach that last day. And I was amazed. You know, you look for shells. The thing that really amazed me, though, that was uh, uh, amid all of the shells, and there were millions of them, obviously, But all throughout the piles of shells and sand, there were pieces of pottery. I mean, everywhere you looked. Little pieces that have been worn down and smoothed out, but you can still see the shape of fingers that went through the wet mud before it was baked. Everywhere. You could hardly reach down and grab sand without picking up a piece of pottery. You know why? Because pottery was like today's plastic. When you're done with it, I don't know why, but everybody just throws it in the ocean, apparently. And so these pottery uh, vessels were broken and just thrown away. I mean, they were constantly being thrown away. These were dishonorable vessels. And that's the way it is in Paul's illustration. Now, we've got to be careful not to press Paul's illustration too far. The word vessel is used in the New Testament to mean bodies or people. The idea here is that the church is made up of many people, many vessels, all of them profess to be followers of Christ, all of them are in the great house called the church, but not all of them are fit. And I'm not saying, I don't think he's talking about salvation or not salvation, at least not here. He's talking about whether one is fit for honorable use by the master of the house uh, Fidulus and Hy- Hymogenes, for example, proved themselves to be dishonorable vessels. It doesn't mean that God didn't use them at all, it just he used them for purposes that you don't want to emulate. Hymenius and Philetius, likewise, though they believed in Christ, perhaps they were dishonorable and not fit to be used by the Master. Now, let's be clear, and back to the point of not pressing the analogy too far, Paul is not speaking about intrinsic worth of persons. He's not saying that some people have value and some people don't. That's not what he's saying. As bearers of God's image, all humans are loved and valued by God. Paul is not equating value with usefulness. Rather, he's equating honor with usefulness. That is, some members of God's household are honored by God more highly than others because of their usefulness as instruments in the Redeemer's hand. They are especially useful. The word honorable in this context has to do with respect, status, dignity. For example, in Philippians 2.29, Paul says, Epaphroditus was to be held in honor because he had been faithful to his calling even when it almost cost him his life. He was an honorable vessel. Now you see what, what Paul is calling Timothy to. Remember Epaphras and those like him. And, and by the way, 1 Timothy 5.17, the elder who rules well is worthy of double honor. This is the kind of thing that, it, that Paul is referring to. This is the point of the analogy. You want to be an honorable vessel. You want to be one like, uh, like the vessels that are made of gold or silver. The ones that, that the lady of the house wants to show off and, and, and uses for special assignments, special occasions. This is Paul's illustration of household vessels. But it leaves us with the question, what is it that qualifies a Christian man or woman to be especially useful and honorable in the eyes of the master. And well, that brings us to the second point. Paul's illustration of the, house, of the household vessels moves us to, number two, Paul's definition of useful vessels. Look at verse 21. Verse 21 reads, Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from what is dishonorable... He will be a vessel for honorable use, set apart as holy, useful to the master of the house, ready for every good work. Now notice with me in this verse that Paul is speaking about people who are worthy of honorable use to the master of the house, and by that he means, here's a new phrase, they are ready for every good work. They're ready they're always ready for every good work. If the master needs someone to serve, this person is ready. If he needs someone to lead, they're ready. When someone needs to be rebuked or corrected, they're ready. When he needs someone to be an example of godliness and integrity, she is ready. When the gospel needs to be shared, he's ready. When someone needs to stand for the truth, he's ready. When it's time to pray, she's ready. When it's time to lay down one's life for the sake of Christ, he or she is ready, always ready, always ready. At the Master's College, we were taught to think like this. The person who is a servant of Jesus Christ should be ready to preach, pray, or die in a minute. He's always ready. He's always ready. This, beloved, is a picture of one who is a vessel for honorable use. On the other hand, vessels of dishonor are those who are who are in the great house of the master, but are but are hardly ever spiritually ready to do what the Lord needs done. An opportunity to share the gospel comes, and they've got such guilt in their heart. They're so disturbed within them that they couldn't possibly even imagine having the wherewithal to communicate the gospel to someone who's standing right in front of them. Their heart is dull. They've been playing fast and loose with temptation And still, others in the house live in such a manner that actually undermines the mission of the Master, such as the case with the false teachers and the other unfaithful men in the church whom Paul has already mentioned. There may be vessels in the Christian community who are unfaithful, unprepared, or undermining to the Master's mission, but their actions prove them to be dishonorable and unfit to participate in the labor of the Lord. They're not ready. And the all-important question then is, what makes one qualified as a vessel of honor, useful for the master? Well, notice with me, it is not his giftedness. This is important. It's not his giftedness. It's not his reputation. Listen to this one. It is not his theological knowledge. Did you hear that? It is not his theological knowledge. That's not what makes him usable, fit as an honorable vessel. There are so many unbelieving theologians who can exegete a text and don't believe a word of it. Or they say they believe it and their lives belie their profession. It's not her natural talents or good looks, it's not his money or expertise in managing people. The one qualification that defines the vessel of honor is purity, holiness. I don't know about you, but that, that encourages me. I know every time you see me, almost, most of you, every time you see me, I'm up here doing what God has gifted me to do. You know what, 99% of the time, I'm, I'm living that other, that other part of me, living outside of my giftedness, living just in the everyday stuff that you live with. And this is important to me. This truth is important to me. It's not giftedness. It's not talent. It's not even knowledge of the Bible. Well, those things can be helpful if they're sanctified by the Spirit of God. The kind of vessel that God used, and now you know why he uses the term vessel, is a pure vessel. Nobody wants to drink out of a dirty cup. Nobody wants to to eat out of a muddy bowl. Notice what Paul says, verse 21. Listen to the words carefully. If anyone cleanses himself. Now, isn't that an interesting statement? cleanses himself. Someone will say, I thought only God could clean a a sinner. Well, that's true. It's true that only God can justify a sinner. Only God can transform the heart of a sinner. Only God can savingly forgive a sinner. If we're talking about the cleansing that brings salvation, then yes, That is a monergistic act of God. He does it all by himself. But that's not what he's talking about here. He's talking about people who are already in the house. They're already members of this household, this big house. Paul isn't speaking of salvation, he's speaking about sanctification. More specifically, he's talking about progressive sanctification, which by design requires the believer's spirit-filled, grace-empowered participation in his own progress toward Christ-likeness. Consider the following proof texts. And I call them proof texts, but understand, uh, I think I'm offering these to you in context. Um, I won't say any more about that. I'm tempted. Anyway, 2 Corinthians 7.1. 2 Corinthians 7.1. Maybe write that down and, and share it with one another in small group. Listen to this. Since we have these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of the body and, and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. Let me read that first line again. Since we have these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement. And how about this one, Titus 2, 11 and 12. For the grace of God has appeared. Now, if, it's, if it's appeared, if it's visible, then it's, it's got to be something real, not just a, a theological idea. This is a reference to Jesus, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men. This is, that's the benefit of the gospel, bring salvation to all men. But there's also the duties of the gospel, and this is one of them. Training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age. I'll tell you what, this present age, this present age, I think it's more difficult to pursue holiness and godliness in this present age, maybe, than it's ever been in American history. And and by the way, the Apostle John, in 1 John 3, 3, says this, everyone who has this hope purifies, what's the next word? himself. Himself. Just as he is pure. And the Apostle Peter, not to be left out, 1 Peter 1, 14 through 16, we read this a little while ago. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your theology. No. Uh, Be holy in all of your... Verbal dialogue. No. Be holy in all your conduct. In all your conduct, since it is written, You shall be holy, for I am holy. This is God speaking. Can we just go back to what I said about the Holy Spirit and frequently say about the Holy Spirit? If the Holy Spirit comes into your life. Here's what God says You shall be holy. I am holy. And that means at least in part if you are a sinner, how many of you are sinners? Uh, I see a few of you who maybe are not. If you're a sinner and the Holy Spirit is resident in your life, he is, not should, he is making you holy. You shall be holy for I am holy, God said. I take these passages to mean that being a Christian is not simply about once saved, always saved. It's not about praying the prayer and and, and coasting into the pearly gates. It's also about loving Jesus Christ by striving in the Spirit's power to become more like him in holiness and purity in the midst of a wicked and perverse generation. This is what Paul means when he speaks of vessels in the Master's house who are honorable They are set apart as holy and therefore useful to the master, ready for every good work. Have you ever wondered why God doesn't use you very much in the lives of other people? Have you considered, has it bothered you as you look at your life and think, man, I mean, I'm a Christian, but I hear people talking about things God has done through them. I've seen things that God has done through other people, and why doesn't he use me? Well, I won't presume on God's sovereign purposes. I would only exhort you to to ask yourself some questions. Are you tolerating sin in your life? Or are you pursuing holiness? Are you battling sin and temptation? Or are you just laying your weapons down and losing all the time, that is, the quickest way out of the experience is just give in. But you know what? It's like cancer in your soul, and it will make you impotent, not unsaved, but impotent for the work of the master. Perhaps the first question you should ask is, am I serious about personal purity And let me say again, beloved, that I understand that in this generation it's more difficult to maintain a heart of purity than perhaps at any other time in history. Impurity is not something you have to look for. It is constantly in your face today. But as followers of Christ, our chief aim should be to please him, to fellowship with him, to live for him, to glorify him, to enjoy him. But these will never be true of us in the absence of a pure heart. And they will be true of you, the presence of the pure heart. I mean, think about Sermon on the Mount. Jesus said, blessed are the pure in heart. Blessed are the pure in heart. They will see God. So how do we maintain a pure heart? Well, we've seen the illustration of household vessels and the definition of useful vessels. Now, finally, the exhortation to become such vessels. Verse 22. So, flee youthful passions and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. Now, I know that the definition, now that we know that the definition of useful vessel is a clean or holy vessel, and now that we know that the Christian must take responsibility for maintaining that purity, the question is, how? How do we do that? What does Paul advise us to do to pursue the kind of holiness that defines useful vessels? who are honorable in God's sight and ready for every good work. Well, Paul answers that question here. And beloved, this is where the action happens. If you're hoping that you get some action points out of this sermon, here they are. And by the way, if you want action points out of any text, look for the verbs. And there are two of them here. There are actually three, which is why I was tempted to go to verse 23, because there's another one there. But these first two, number one, first verb is flee. Paul says, flee youthful passions. Or maybe your version says, flee youthful lusts. The word flee is from the Greek word fuge, which enters the English language in noun form as fugitive. You're a person on the run. From someone who is trying their dead-level best to capture you, to arrest you, to enslave you. Flee means to seek safety by means of flight. Um, a lot of you know that uh, one of the things I've done with my children, especially my boys, not exclusively, but just to, just to spend time with them out in the rugged world is every season we, we hunt turkeys. In the mystery of God's uh, providence, he now has given us a house that uh, we get swarmed, literally swarmed with turkeys that we can't shoot. It's just not right. <laughs> Sometimes we'll look in the backyard and there'll be one almost pecking at our back door window, <laughs> and we can't do a thing about it. But you know, when, it, when we're walking around the ranch up by the Red River, And uh, we got our guns out, and we're looking for turkeys, and you come around a corner, and they see you. You know what happens? They don't stand there and say, excuse me, what might your intentions be, kind (laughs) sir? No, no, no. They become fugitives. They disappear. They flee for safety, they take wing and fly, you may not know that turkeys fly, we've seen them fly, and so should you when temptation comes, and it doesn't matter what kind of temptation, I mean, you look at this, and when it says flee youthful lust, everybody thinks sexual lust, that's not what Paul is saying. It is inferred, you can put that within the group of sins that he may be referring to, to be sure. But nowhere in here is he talking about sexual immorality. This is merely a general inference for any temptation that tends to enslave you, tends to captivate you, tends to arrest you, and keep you from being the holy, pure, honorable vessel that that the Lord loves to use to accomplish his purposes. To flee means to avoid, to shun, to run away from. And by the way, this is what Joseph did when Potiphar's wife attempted to seduce him. He didn't stand around to discuss the issue. He didn't try to discern how much pleasure he could enjoy with her without crossing the moral boundary or getting caught. No, he just ran for his life, and he left his cloak behind. Youthful lusts, this is simply a term that refers to kind of strong desires that are endemic to youth. But it doesn't mean that it only applies to young people. Strong desires are common in in old age and young age alike, and, and they can find expression in a number of different directions. Sexual lust, yes. And maybe we could even say that's the dominant one in our culture. Sexual lust, but material enjoyment, coveting one another person's possessions. It may be control, it may be anger, it may be success, it may be money, it may be fame. All of these desires and many more can infiltrate your life and turn your heart away from devotion to Christ, any of them. Entertainment, video games. The human heart has the ability to be addicted to anything to be enslaved to practically everything. And Paul's telling Timothy that if he wants to be an honorable vessel, useful to the master, ready for every good work, he has to identify the secret lust of his heart, any dominating desire of his heart that turns his soul away from devotion to Christ and fly from it. Flee from it. And Listen to how Jesus said it. His terms are more graphic. If your right hand offends you, cut it off. If your right eye offends you, gouge it out. What does he mean? Well he means that sometimes you have to engage in radical amputation. Not physical amputation of bodily parts, but the kind of amputation that cuts off anything, any desire, any behavior, any technology, any any person that keeps you from being pure, holy, and fit for the master's use. It may be your computer, maybe your girlfriend, maybe your job, it may be your video console. You fill in the blank. What is it? Do you struggle with sexual lust? Here's my question. Do you struggle with sexual lust? Then why haven't you invested in the kind of internet router that can block undesirable content in your home? If you come into my house and you want to use the internet, you say, hey, do you have Wi-Fi? Sure do. Can I have the code? Sure can. Hey, why can't I get on the things that I want to get on? Because our router's blocking it. And, uh, and, and you know what? Sometimes it's really inconvenient. Who cares? Who cares? Do you struggle with materialism? Why haven't you cut up the credit cards yet? This is radical amputation. What enslaving desire tends to dominate you and keep you from being fit for the master's use? Flee from it. Cut it off. Run away. And by the way, the word flee here is a present active imperative. It means flee and keep on fleeing, and it's a strong command. It's the same kind of thing that we've talked about before. When it talks about believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, believe and keep on believing. How about repentance? Repent and keep on repenting. These are strong, active, indicative verbs. In fact, these verbs are so important to the text of Scripture in my computer software I've uh, set things up so my computer will highlight in pink every time there's such a verb. The second verb, which is also present indicative active, is pursue. So there's a sense in which your whole life can be summed up in three things. If I want to get to know you, there are three things that I want to know about you. What are you running from? What are you running to? And who are you running with? Paul deals with that in a different section in First and 2 Timothy. But what are you running from and what are you running to? You see, a Christian life is not merely about running away from something. This is not about being ultra scrupulous about anything that might bother you. No, this is also, it's not only putting off temptation and sin, it's also about running to something, something. namely verse 22, and he gives us a short list. Righteousness, faith, love, and peace. Four positive virtues, or we might say four fruits of the Spirit, not all of which are listed in Galatians chapter 5. But to be sure, you're not going to produce any of them without the power of the Spirit. Righteousness, has to do with obedience. Jesus said, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. Faith? Faith is about trusting the promises of God rather than your own desires. Instead of following your heart, you follow Scripture. Be like Martin Luther. My heart is held captive. My conscience is held captive by the Word of God. It means trusting in God's character and Word. Love is agape here, which typically means love to God and love toward your neighbor or love toward others. Love is all about self-sacrifice rather than self-gratification. And by the way, that's the whole problem with sin. I mean, that's the essence of sin. Self-gratification. I'm not saying that all self-interest is sinful. It's not. Some self-interest is essential, but that's a different sermon. The self-gratification That is the the foundational motive for all sin. You do what you do because you want what you want. Why do we fight, James 4 says? Because we want something and we're not getting it. We're willing to sin to get it or sin if we can't have it. And then there's peace. Peace is about pursuing and maintaining harmonious relationships. This is the same peace that is found In Galatians chapter 5, love, joy, peace. It's not the peace that passes all understanding. It's that pursuing of relationships that, that are broken and trying to bring peace between, trying to bring reconciliation, trying to bring harmony back to those relationships. And notice that we are not called to do this alone. Rather, we are to do it along with those who call on the name of the Lord from a pure heart. You see that at the end there? He says, verse 22, uh, flee youthful passions and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. I want you to notice here that the Lord has not called you to be a lone ranger. And I hope in this church you know that by now. Our Catholic or ex-Catholic friends will tell you, when they used to go to church, read anything about community. It was about showing up, doing the ritual, leaving. You don't hang out afterwards for the potluck. You don't ask each other, how's your battle with lust this week? Or how's your time in the word? Or any of that stuff. No, no, no. You come and you do the ritual and you go home. That's not Jesus' prescription for those who live in communion with him. The reason we take the Lord's Supper together and not individually is because the new covenant binds us together with one another. We are in covenant with one another. And so do this. Pursue holiness. Pursue purity. Be serious about temptation and sin. Be serious about being a vessel of honor fit for the master's use. And do it with other people. Do it with your small group. Do it with people after church. Listen, when I say to you at the end of the service, don't just run out of here, but grab somebody and ask, what do you got coming up this week that I can pray for? And then pray about it. You might find other things about that person that that you can minister to, serve one another. This is community. And so we do it with one another. We do it with all those. We do it with all those who call on the name of the Lord With a pure heart. By the way, call on the name of the Lord. That's salvation language. Call upon the name of the Lord. All who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved, right? Repeatedly in the text in the New Testament. Call upon the name of the Lord. This is the church. Once again, here's the church showing itself in these verses. So we're we're not to do this alone. Rather, we are to do it with other members of the church. Is sin keeping you from becoming a vessel of honor, honorable, uh, that's honorable use, set apart as holy? And by the way, set apart as holy, this is again why I want to emphasize he's not talking about believer or non-believer. He's talking about, I think in, in your version or the NAS, it says, uh, those who have been sanctified. Uh, that's a reference to salvation. Set apart as holy, useful for the master? Do you want to be that kind of person? Then, inference from this last statement is ask somebody to help you. Ask somebody to help you. Especially if you find yourself enslaved to some secret temptation and sin. Let's be honest, beloved. We are sinners all. And... um, No one excluded, including the man behind this pulpit. We are all sinners. None of us is perfect. None of us is Jesus yet. All of us are broken. All of us face temptation and sin. It's common to man. But we can help one another. Indeed, we're commanded to help one another. Here's what the author of Hebrews said. He was very concerned about this his Jewish brothers who were in the church at the time. He said, take care, brothers. Be careful. Lest there be in any one of you an unbelieving heart that falls away from the living God. You know what that means? We should be looking outward. We should be looking outward. Who can I help? Who can I help? Who can I help? Who seems to be drifting a little bit? I don't, I don't know where they are. They're not talking to me about the Lord anymore. I wonder what's going on. They're not showing up to small group. They're not coming to the ladies' Bible study or the, or the men's Bible study. What's going on? He's saying, you guys be careful with one another. You show care. That doesn't mean be nice to them. It means keep on the watch for one another, lest anyone be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. And then verse 13, but exhort one another day after day as long as it, it is called today so that no one may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. There's actually two sides to this. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any one of you an unbelieving heart, but exhort one another day after day. You know what that means? We've got to open ourselves up to be exhorted. We've got to open ourselves up to be exhorted. Listen, my friend, Christians Christians don't merely go to church. We are the church. And we are Christ to one another. We are instruments in the Redeemer's hand. We are members with Christ and therefore members of one another. And all of that means in this fight for faith, we need each other. We need each other. And this is especially true when we consider the fact, and this is an important fact, so all eyes up here for a minute. This is especially important when we consider the fact that holiness and purity is not a state that we finally will arrive at. I mean, in heaven we will, but not in this life. Holiness and purity is not a final state that we mature into and finally have arrived. Rather, it's a battle. It's a daily battle. Some days it's... It's not very fierce. In other days you feel like you're gonna lose it all. J.C. Ryle in his classy book classic book Holiness writes this True holiness is much more than tears and sighs. A holy violence, a conflict, a warfare, a fight, a soldier's life, a wrestling. All all of this are spoken of as characteristics of the true Christian life. We need each other. Nobody gets sent out into battle alone. And the Lord hasn't sent you. You got the helmet on. You got the belt of truth, the breastplate of righteousness. You got the shoes of the gospel. You got the sword of the spirit. Even then... You don't go to the battle alone. We need one another. Do you want your life to count for God? Do you want it to be used by him to advance his mission in the world? Do you do you, do you want him to view you as a vessel of honor, set apart as holy, useful to the master in the great house, and ready for every good work? Then beloved, take temptation seriously. You say, well, I didn't mean to sin. Listen, almost all sin is unintentional. You get it? Almost all sin is unintentional. In fact, in the Old Testament, the only, the only kind of sin that there were sacrifices prescribed for were unintentional sins. And so don't use that excuse, well, I didn't mean to. Well, you could say that about almost every sin. I didn't mean to. You know, I just it, I did it without thinking. And sometimes you don't even realize you're doing it. You just, you just realize that something is going on in your mind that is unholy. And you don't know where it came from. Can I just tell you where it came from? It didn't, came from, it didn't come from Christ. It came from your heart. If you want to keep it pure, you've got to deal with it. You've got to deal with it. I'm not talking about morbid introspection. I'm just talking about honesty. Honesty. And so take temptation seriously, take sin seriously, take your youthful lusts, you young and old men and women alike, take them seriously, flee from them, pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace. There's one thing I didn't didn't make the cut in the sermon that I want to add to this, and this should be to your encouragement. Here's, let me read the text again. In the great house, there are not only vessels of gold and silver, but also of wood hay, uh, wood and clay, some for honorable use, some for dishonorable. Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from what is dishonorable, he will be a vessel of, for honorable use, set apart as holy, useful, useful to the master of the house, ready for every good work. I just want to hone in on that word useful. I discovered something this week. There are two cases where this word is used. There are other cases to be sure, but two of them that I found that may encourage you. The one is John Mark. John Mark is known for being useless. He ran home to mama when the going got tough. But you know what happened at the end of Paul's life even in this book 2 Timothy he will say Timothy come to me as quick as you can and by the way bring John Mark for he is useful to me you know who the other one was he was a slave his master was a man by the name of Philemon strong believer he was useless to Philemon because he ran away And in the strange providence of God, he runs to Rome. I mean, how many people were in Rome? Somehow he meets, he bumps into the Apostle Paul, who's under house arrest. How did that happen? Maybe divine orchestration? He meets the Apostle Paul. Paul leads him to Christ. And he sends him back with a letter to Philemon. And he says, Philemon, This one who was useless to you is useful to me and to the Lord. What I want you to hear there is that you may look over your life and say, when I think about the quality of my heart over the years, how could God ever use me? I have been useless. Take heart, sinner. God can make you useful again. And maybe the reason you're useless is because you don't know the Lord. That's not the only possibility. But that is one possibility. Maybe His Spirit doesn't dwell within you. Maybe you haven't come to him abandoning all self-righteousness, all self-righteousness. Maybe you have come to him and offered him yourself as if he would be impressed by that. No, he wants you to come as one who is poverty-stricken spiritually. You know that you have nothing to offer God but your sin, and you surrender. I plead with you, if you don't know him, may today be the day that you run to the grace and the glory of the forgiveness and salvation of Jesus Christ. And if you already know him, then join me in renewing your resolve to become and to maintain the kind of heart that God finds and calls a vessel of gold or silver Honorable, useful for every good work. And by his grace and glory, we can participate in that. And I hope you will. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for this text. Thank you for the warning. Uh, The warnings of your word always hit hard and make us uncomfortable. But they are for our joy. And so we praise you. Thank you, Lord. You, you would not love us if you didn't exhort us to flee sin and f- fly to Christ. So thank you for loving your people and for giving us your word. We give you praise for it now in the name of our Savior Jesus. Amen.